Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the, ab the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to your word this morning and we offer our thanks to you for revealing yourself clearly to us and granting us your spirit that we could know and have light and truth. Apart from him, it is all darkness. It is only in your light that we see light. And so we ask this morning that you will come and that you will speak for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the past weeks, we followed the rise and fall of King Solomon, beginning in the first chapters of Kings and now arriving to the climatic statements of Solomon's reign here in chapter 11. We've seen that Solomon was the wisest and the wealthiest, the most prosperous of all the kings of Israel. We've also noted the complexities and the complications of his character that he was a man filled with vices and also with incredible virtues. It's a difficult picture to wrestle with. It's signaled for us in the two bookends of Solomon's story. In chapter 3, verse 3, we're told that Solomon loved God. Sincerely and truly, he loved God. But yet in chapter 11, in his old age, in verses 2 through 4, we learn also that Solomon clung to his foreign wives and they led him away from God and he was not wholly true to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the living and true God, the creator and redeemer of all things. Solomon was not true to him. And we've also seen that this collapse in Solomon's old age, that it didn't just come out of nowhere that we can't neatly and cleanly divide Solomon's life as if there was an early faithful Solomon and then a later unfaithful apostate Solomon. But rather, Del Ralph Davis, a biblical commentator, sums it up about Solomon's demise. And he explains it this way. He says, no, it took years. The result of the creeping pace of accumulated compromises, the fruit of a conscience desensitized by repeated permissiveness. And this is where we found the story of Solomon incredibly helpful, pastorally helpful for you and for me, because our lives are just like Solomon's. We too can make compromises along the way in permissiveness, and then these sins metastasizing on us 
and we too can be led away from God. Solomon's heart was divided. His loves were disordered, and this caught up with him in the climatic chapters of 1 Kings 11. Because we saw in chapter 3 that Solomon did make a judicious request. He asked God for wisdom. Rather than grasping for wisdom and going out for it on his own, as our first parents did, Solomon asked God for wisdom. Wisdom so that he could rule and that he could renounce himself and serve the people of God well. But at the same time, next to that great virtue of asking for wisdom, Solomon also marries foreign women. He does so against the command of God in Deuteronomy 7. He also multiplies horses, making many chariots and horse stalls against the command of Deuteronomy 17. We see that he also did not destroy the high places of worship as he was supposed to. Further in chapter 5, we see that Solomon commits himself to building God's temple, a noble task. The intersection of heaven and earth, the place where the sacraments of God were on display. It was the place that was the shadow of everything that was to come in the further revelation of God in Jesus. The temple was an incredibly important and significant moment in the history of the Bible. Solomon committed himself to building it. But yet we also saw his mixed motivations. That that project was delayed. It went slower than it should have because he was double the time building his own temple. And so Solomon's character is extremely muddled for us in the context of the Bible. But what is clear is that Solomon clung to his wives. He loved them above his love and devotion to God, and he was led astray into false worship. His loves were disordered, and it manifested itself in that fatal final compromise that we find in chapter 11. And so the question for us today, as we close this series on the rise and fall of Solomon, and also as we turn to a new series from the Psalms on repentance, is to simply ask this, how do we, how do you, and how do I recover when we find ourselves with our own loves disordered, when we find our priorities and motivations in life jumbled, when we find ourselves like Solomon, clinging to other things that are more important to us than God himself. Psalm 73 leads us into the answer of that most significant question. Because Psalm 73 is a narrative of a heart seduced and a heart healed. Tradition associates this psalm with Solomon. The psalm just before it in Psalm 72 that closes book two of the psalms is actually entitled Of Solomon, of his great reign. And everyone would have always wondered what happened to him. And of course, Solomon repents. The book of Ecclesiastes records that for us. And Psalm 73 is also said to walk us through that repentance. And so how do you, how do I recover from the disordering of our loves where other things come up next to God and then go above God? Three things that we'll find here in Psalm 73. First, to recover, we have to acknowledge the dynamics 
of seduction. This is, we have to acknowledge how we got in trouble in the first place. And if you look in Psalm 73, in verse 3, you'll find the beginning of this seduction. The psalm says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's two dynamics we'll find here running from verses 1 through 15. And the first is that there is envy. That this is what happens to Solomon, is that he grows envious of who he calls the arrogant or the wicked. Now those are strong terms, but simply those who have no interest in the living God who have no desire to commune with him, no interest in theology or what it means to be reconciled to him. They ignore him in their lives. And so the psalmist explains that he grew envious of them when he saw their prosperity. Now the word prosperity is an interesting one. It's one that we're familiar with from the Old Testament in the original. It's the word shalom. He's envious of them when he saw their peace. That they had no interest in God, and their life seemed to go just swimmingly well. They were without concern. They had a sense of overarching wholeness and satisfaction and prosperity. The description continues to run from verses 4 to 12. And he describes that their lives were untroubled, free from the concerns that seemed to harass most people, especially those who were following God. They are adorned with pride. They get, they, they get their way by violence and force and manipulation. They live in luxury. They live without restriction. The burdensome commands, a life of self-indulgent freedom is theirs. He was envious. In verse 11, we see that they are unbothered by God. He's passe. He's old-fashioned. He's irrelevant. And what is happening is that Solomon is growing envious of their self-sufficiency. He's growing envious of their affluence. He's growing envious of their autonomy. You see, he wanted to be a king like the other nations, and this was God's warning to Israel about wanting a king. And when we consider the way of those who are not interested in God, we can be drawn into the same envy. Verse 12 captures it well. They are always at ease. They increase in riches. We can look at their lives and see that it seems to go so well for them, and life is so easy. And this leads us to the second dynamic, because the second dynamic is in the backside of that observation that life goes well for them, is that we then begin to deconstruct our own faith. That is, that the envy begins to eat us from inside, and we begin to ask questions of God. You find these questions in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. In his enviousness of that self-sufficient, autonomous way of life, He enters into this quandary of the soul where he begins to ask, is it worth it? Is it worth believing these promises? Is it worth following this God? Is this God really true? Is he good? And so he's tearing apart his faith from its very foundations. 
all growing out of his envy of what he perceived to be the ease of those who had no concern for God. He is saying that it's all vain, that it's all empty. He indicates that the more he was devoted to God, the more he was weighed down by troubles and sorrows. And so is it worth it? And so he ponders these thoughts. He's meditating upon his own envy. He's meditating upon his own desires. He's using his own wisdom to direct him in that path. And he finds himself stumbling and he finds himself slipping, questioning God's goodness and wondering whether it is all worth it at all. And friends, this is the path of deconstruction moving from envy to questions of God, in which we begin to tear apart the foundations. And oftentimes we convince ourselves in that process that it's all an intellectual task. I've never pastored an individual who's moved out of the church and denied their their Christian faith, who has not said, well, I just read this book and became educated as to what was really going on in the world, and so I've just torn all my beliefs apart and thrown it all away. And universally, each of those people have said it's just an intellectual thing. God gives us no permission to ever think that because it's never just intellectual. Our beliefs themselves are moral, and Psalm 73 guides us in this, that Solomon Yes, he enters into questioning God. He enters into questions of theodicy and theology. But those questions ultimately arise from a moral rebellion, a desire to be autonomous and independent of God, a desire not to be under God's rule and subject to him, a desire not to need forgiveness from this God and relate to him. Solomon was driven by his envy to be a king like the kings of the other nations. And this led him into the deconstructive process where he begins to pick his faith apart and tear it apart and say, this is not true. And friends, we have to understand and appreciate and acknowledge how it happens to us because we're not beyond this. Like Solomon, we carry all of these weaknesses. We carry all of those vices along with our virtues that can metastasize on us and destroy us. And so the first step to recovery is just understanding the process of seduction. Now the second step is to renounce our wisdom. In verse 16, the psalm takes a turn. He says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Something is happening now The psalmist is arrested, and he's being awakened from his slumber. He recognizes that as he turns over these thoughts, and what he's turning over, he's contemplating the peace or the prosperity of those who have no interest in God. As he contemplates that, and he thinks about the life that they lead and joining them, he says he finds it a wearisome task. And friends, when we confide in our own reason, it is a wearisome task. And this is what Solomon found himself doing. 
He was thinking through the prosperity of those who had no interest in God, and he found it attractive and alluring because he was using his own wisdom and reasoning. And when we use our own wisdom and reasoning, we cannot rescue ourselves from the perplexity that he fell into. Everything will seem vain and empty about our commitment to God and about his greater commitment to us. When left to ourselves, we will want to join those who we will perceive are at ease, that their lives are unburdened, that they go from strength to strength. This is where our own understanding will drop us every time. And Solomon's being awakened to that, that he's been operating according to his own wisdom and counsel. And then in verse 17, we see the climatic moment. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Here Solomon is officially arrested. And he's arrested not by his own wisdom, but he's arrested by God in the sanctuary. That is the temple of the living God in that time of the church. This is where the grace of God was on display. The atonement offerings being made, prayers being offered, the law of God being taught. And it's in all of that rich context that Solomon comes to himself. It's there that he begins to perceive and understand the end of those who didn't follow God. He comes to a new understanding and appreciation of his own foundations. The deconstruction ends, the envy ends. There in the presence of God is where it's arrested. In 18 through 20, he's drawn back to that broader work of God and gains perspective on what's been happening to him. He sees that the end of those who have no interest in God is ruin and judgment, condemnation, that they have no hope. He says their lives are unreal as if a bad dream, that they're empty and open to the judgment of God. And friends, this is why what we do week by week on the day we call the Sabbath or the Lord's Day is so critically important because where Solomon was arrested was coming into the assembly. It was there in that Old Testament context of the sacrifices and the prayers and the reading of the law, all the means of the grace of God on display that he finds himself reminded of all the promises of God, that he reminds himself of God's commitment to him, that yes, this was the God who brought Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And when we come week by week, this is exactly and precisely what we need to be awakened again and again to all of that grace, that God has made you his own through Jesus, that he set you apart for himself, that he's forgiven your sins, canceling them out in the death of his son, that he's granted you a righteousness you can never earn for yourself. He's imputed that to you. He's made it yours, that he gives you the hope of a great future. Not a harp in heaven for eternity, but a new heavens and new earth where God once again dwells with us. And we live in resurrected bodies, in a renewed world, free from the pollution and the stain of sin. This is what happens when we enter into the sanctuary and we meet with the living God. We're drawn into all of this greatness. And friends, the only thing that can arrest the wisdom that lives in us 
that interprets the ease of those who have no interest in God is this counter-wisdom. The wisdom that God reveals in Scripture, the wisdom God gives to us in His grace, in the grace of the gospel. And so we have to turn from our own wisdom, turn from our own resources, enter into the sanctuary of God and hear the living God in this gospel. Hear the living God in His grace and all that He does for us in Jesus. And finally, to recover, we also return to our foundation. Psalm 73, prior to listing the seduction, begins in an interesting way. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He then moves into his decline, his declension from the living God as he was seduced to think that the wicked had it so good. And then in verses 23 through 28, he returns to this statement of the goodness of God. Listen once again to what he says. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. His feet had stumbled. He had slipped. But he returns to those foundations, those very foundations that envy had begun to deconstruct. Those very foundations that he had assailed with questions, critical questions in which he's trying to tear apart his own faith. But here he returns in a beautiful profession of faith that his one good in this life, his one good upon earth, despite the many good things that God gives to us to enjoy, his one good is being near to God. This was the foundation he nearly forgot. But he recognizes that his good was not in self-indulgence. He recognizes that his good was not found in power, violence, and manipulation. He recognizes that his good is not found in pleasurable things, that his good is not found in affluence. He recognizes the end of all those things because it's here in announcing that God is his one good, that his loves are being rightly ordered, that God lavished upon Solomon, and he lavishes upon you, and he lavishes upon me bountiful gifts, gifts for us to enjoy, gifts for us to find pleasure in. But he gives us those gifts not so that we can rip them apart from him and go have them to ourselves. All the gifts in God's good creation that are ours are to direct us to him. And Solomon professes that and he understands it, that his one good in life is nearness with God. It is knowing God and that everything that he has is not an end of itself but takes him to the proper end of everything. The goal of all of life, the object of everything, communing with God. 
And so he recognizes this. He professes it. And friends, we have to ask the question, though, why exactly would we ever turn to this? Why, when we're left in our own reason and we can come so embittered in heart, with a bit of experience, we understand that seduction process and how easy it is to be dropped off there, to become envious, to think that it's not worth it, to think that God doesn't really seem to care about us, to question what's really going on. The reason that we continue to profess that is we become convinced of something more profound than just the good gifts of creation. But we become convinced of the profound gift that he has given in Jesus. That the son has come, that the father in his tender affections for you has sent Jesus and Jesus has come into the world and that for all your betrayal and backstabbing of God and all your grasping for wisdom on your own and all your turns from him and abuse of his gifts, that he's willing to forgive all of that. That he sends his son to die on a cross, that that would be canceled, that he would carry your shame, that he would give you his righteousness. This is why we are convinced that God is our one good. He has displayed that magnificently in the cross of his son. And he wants to convince you that nearness to him and walking with him and having nothing else on earth doesn't mean we don't own anything else, but nothing goes above him. And Paul reflects this in the question he asked in Romans 8, 32. If he gave his only son, how will he not in him freely give you all things. And that's the truth for you as a Christian. He has given you everything in him. And because the son has done this, he gets to be the preeminent love, the directing force of our lives, saving us from the chaos and the turmoil of all those things that can't satisfy us. This is what your God has done, and this is the way and the path of return when our loves get disordered. Because we are prone to wonder. Like lost sheep, we lose our way. But God is gracious. He calls us back, renouncing our own wisdom. He calls us back to profess our foundations and to know him as the one good of this life. And so let's ask for his help with that. Father, we freely acknowledge the fickleness and the unfaithfulness that lives within us. That we turn to so many things to find our good and our satisfaction. And all the emptiness and the vanity we experience, God, we ask that you forgive us. And that you properly order our loves and you rightly direct us to you. That we know that our one good in life is to be near you. And so reorient our wisdom. Grant us to submit to your wisdom and truth revealed in the gospel. And grant us to profess that true foundation. That truly it is good for us to be near to you. We ask for your work by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.